So welcome to another episode of Business and Stuff. We've got a great guest for you today from NASA, retired now, um, but 35 years at NASA and a, a hugely successful career there, Donald Gregory James. So Donald, thank you very much uh, for joining us. And for all our listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with you, please tell us your story and, and what led you to, to NASA. Uh, thank you, Pierre, and um, I really appreciate this opportunity, and it's wonderful to connect with you and to your audience. Um, well, as people can probably tell just from my voice, I'm an American. I grew up in California. I was educated in Southern California and then went to graduate school in Washington, D.C. What's interesting, I think, about my trajectory to NASA is that I started off as a young boy fascinated by airplanes and aviation. We, when I was in grade school, we used to get these newsletters that talked about airplanes. And I was fascinated by the prospect of two types of airplanes that were coming uh, uh, online. One was the supersonic transport and the other was the jumbo jet. Of course, at the time, neither of those existed. So I followed those with great interest and I really wanted to work on the supersonic transport. And as you know, um, you know, Britain and France developed the Concorde. The United States was also trying to develop a supersonic transport. Eventually, it canceled it. So by the time I got to college, we weren't building uh, that plane. And, you know, I decided to study aerospace engineering because that's what I wanted to get into. And the, the space program was coming to an end with the moon program, right? It was after Apollo. And so things were kind of on the downward spiral in terms of my field of interest. So I got a little disillusioned. So I changed my major. I decided that I, you know, was really concerned about the problems of, you know, poverty and destitution in the world. And I was going to study those issues. And as a matter of fact, I had, uh, gotten into the University of Sussex to go study, and I was all excited to go study there and talk, study about development, and then I realized that the fellowship that I received from the National Science Foundation said, well, you, you can have this fellowship, but you have to spend it in the United States, so I had to stay in the U.S. And then something funny happened when I was in graduate school. I realized, you know, I don't really want to, I was studying economics, and I didn't want to be an economist, and you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I, I found out that most jobs you had to have experience already in order to get work. Uh, so that's kind of pro tip number one. Take advantage of any opportunity to actually get experience, whether it's free internships or whatever it is, because a lot of people want to know that you've actually had experience. And so I got into an um, uh, intern program with the U.S. government called the Presidential Management Intern Program. And uh, that afforded me an opportunity to apply to federal agencies that had positions for uh, our interns. And, um, and I actually got a letter from NASA out of the blue saying, you know, we, how would you like to interview with us? And I thought, well, that's kind of curious. I mean, Ooh. I changed my major in college. And, you know, the last time I did any kind of engineering, I was using slide rules. And I was like, well, they must, NASA must be really desperate. Uh, so I was living with my dad at the time. And, you know, my dad being a diplomat, because he is a diplomat, he said, uh, you know, it's all, this is pro tip number two. He said, never turn down an opportunity to interview, even if you don't think you want the job. It's always good practice. So I said, okay. So I did the interview. And I was very candid with the people at NASA. I said, you know, I've changed my interest and 
I wanted to do some other things. I mean, I didn't say it quite like that. But at the end of the day, you know, we had a good dialogue. And to my surprise, the next day they called me up and said, we'd like to hire you. And I was really surprised by that. And I said, you know, I'm still trying to work out, you know, what I wanted to do. And I'm exploring other opportunities. And after three or four days, that every day they called me saying, we'd like to hire you. Again, my father said, uh, well, son, this is an actual job that pays money. You might want to consider taking it. And uh, this is how you can get your experience that you wanted. And so um, part of the reason I tell this story is how, why is it that I was chosen from that interview? And this is something that I write about in the book that I just published. And I know we're going to talk about that. Um, but I never planned to stay with NASA forever. It was, it was a place initially where I just wanted to get experience so that I could take it to where I thought I wanted to go. But 1986 totally changed everything for me. It changed my life. It changed my trajectory. And of course, the listeners probably know what happened in 1986. The space shuttle Challenger exploded on launch and it carried the first teacher that we were sending into space. And this really shook the nation uh, and NASA to the core, including myself. And what happened was is that after the tragedy, uh, the head of NASA education uh, called me up. Now, at the time, I'm just a junior public affairs person working at one of our field centers in California, called me up and said, um, we are planning to send the, uh, the backup astronaut to the teacher. So the teacher who perished on Challenger was Krista McAuliffe, and all astronauts have backups in case somebody gets sick. And the mm -hmm. backup for Krista was Barbara Morgan from Idaho. And they asked me if I would work with Barbara to go around the country to talk to teachers and students because there was this outpouring of love and feeling of connection because of the tragedy. And it was that experience that transformed me, Pierre, because I saw firsthand how much NASA could inspire so many people, teachers and students and parents, even to the point where because of my role, I always had to introduce Barbara and I had to facilitate, you know, her talks to big conferences and things like that. There was this one conference in Los Angeles where, you know, after I introduced Barbara and I sit off to the side, what typically happens is when she's finished, everybody comes up to the dais to get her autograph. And I'm the bad guy. I have to be the one to <laughs> cut it off and take her to her next event. And this little boy comes up to me, and I'm standing off to the side of the dais, and he's holding out his notepad and his pencil uh, up at me. And I'm thinking he wants me to get the autograph from the astronaut, right? And now Barbara didn't fly, but she was a qualified astronaut because she was prepared to. So I said, oh, oh, I'll go ahead and get in line, young man. I'll, I'll make sure that she signs your notebook. And he said, no, I want your autograph. And I said, why? I'm not the astronaut. She's the astronaut. And he said, yeah, but you know, you work for NASA, and that's just so cool. And I, that was the moment that I look back to and say, said, if 
I can have this kind of impact just by virtue of who my employer is, I'm in. And I made a commitment that day that I was going to make a career out of NASA. And not only did I do that, I ended up becoming the head of NASA education. That was my last position. Mm-hmm. So that's my, that's my NASA story. Fantastic. And yeah, you're right. I mean, NASA really does inspire so many people and and space as well is so fascinating to people, myself included. Why do you think as as a human race, really, we we are so inspired by space? Is it do you think it's the deep unknown? Do you think it's a deeper connection, perhaps, that we have as as part of the universe and, you know, sort of wider and, and sort of more? external than than the earth itself i mean what do you think is the huge sort of gravitational pull to to people being so fascinated about space well pierre you know humans throughout history have been curious about a lot of things you know we had the early explorers who set sail on ships to traverse the oceans to parts unknown um you know there were people who didn't know the earth was round and they thought you know if they went too far they'd fall off the edge of the earth Um, there were expeditions where they knew that most of the crew was never going to come back but yet they still set sail in search of you know foreign lands so there's something i think inherent in our humanity to want to understand things about our physical environment that is mystery, mystery, mysterious to us, okay? And so we've always had the stars, right, from back in the caveman days, and they saw stars, they saw meteorites, and, you know, I'm sure they were wondering what that was. And without a scientific explanation, we typically tend to attribute these things to gods and, you know, the gods of fire and the gods of light and all of that stuff. So I think I think it really is part of our humanity. I mean, I ask people, you know, what interests them about space, and you know, I get a range of answers. Some people are just curious about whether there's life in the universe other than on Earth. Some people are just enamored of the technology to be able to get anything off the ground and into orbit. I mean, it's a very difficult proposition. Um, some people are are convinced that we're going to have to settle the universe with humans. We're going to have to make it possible for humans to live and work on places like the moon or Mars um, for various reasons, either just for fun or because, or because they believe that one day we're going to ruin the earth so much that it won't be habitable. This is what I hear. Um, I think there's just a general fascination, you know, people who want to be astronauts. I mean, let's face it. I mean, you're floating in space and the feeling is, is different. It's the same kind of thrill that I think people get is why they want to go on the fastest and biggest roller coasters, particularly the ones that make you go upside down and you get to experience, you know, about 10 seconds of zero gravity, right? On a roller coaster. So I think it's a range of things, um, and NASA just happens to be the agency that was charged with, uh, in the United States, with sending people to the moon and back, and, you know, that had never been done before, and at the time when President Kennedy committed to that, it seemed like a pipe dream, because, you know, the technology wasn't there, it just seemed like a real stretch, but yet... 
you know, it was accomplished. And I think people hold that up as sort of the gold standard, you know, for achievement. And you've heard this often when people say, wow, we can go to the moon. Why can't we solve X, right? You know, mm. so I think it's just a, a bunch of different reasons, but it, it is fascinating. I mean, I'm fascinated by the universe and how big it is and, you know, I, I still don't understand the concept of expanding in the universe. I asked astronomers, I said, you know, help me understand that. So if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? <laughs> That's kind of how I think. Now, the problem is that I know that my construct of that is faulty, and so I have to still get my head around that. But, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Definitely, yeah. No, it's it's, it's a really uh, difficult thing to kind of grasp. Where uh, imagining the Big Bang and and that kind of all of all of us and everything within it sort of exists within that, and it's yeah. expanding and expanding. And you think, well, what is it expanding into? And and then you know we're we're kind of told, or you know, well, it's it's sort of it's not like that. It's just kind of it is it is itself and it is expanding and that is all there is yeah Um, it's a a really difficult um thing to kind of comprehend um but what i find amazing i mean truly outstanding is and this is probably you know down to to your colleagues and 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 so forth at, uh, at nasa is is quite how they take mathematics and they can learn so much about space about gravity about the way that the universe is really without very much exploration without really stepping outside of well say stepping outside of the world you know kind of you know going outside of of earth they have such talent at working out so many things with mathematics and it's amazing and i guess that really helped you know to put people on the moon you know like like you say and and without that huge intelligence and and the the people you know your colleagues that work with you at at nasa you know without that those achievements would have never been made right right absolutely It, it required you know and even you've imagined the kind of computations that were required you know back in the early apollo days you know they were using computers that were far less capable than the computers you and I are using right now just to communicate. So it's amazing to think that, you know, a lot of that worked, but a lot of that stuff was done, you know, by hand and calculators and on pencil and paper. If anybody saw the movie Hidden Figures, which was absolutely a true story, you know, the women that were relegated to the back rooms to do trajectory calculations, uh, you know, a lot of them were doing that stuff by hand. I mean, they had to know how to work those solutions out in their head. So um, absolutely. And these days, of course, there's, you know, there's huge growth in, in the private space industry, um, the likes of Elon Musk with uh, SpaceX Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin, but so many space technology startups as well. Do you think that's a good thing? Is that advancing us in the right way? Or, I mean, is it too competitive a market? I mean, what's your thoughts on sort of the advancements of the sort of the private sector? So I use this analogy. So the answer is yes, I'm I'm a fan of it. Uh, when I was in the agency, I was a, a big advocate um, uh, for commercial development of commercial space. The analogy that I use is this: if people reflect back on the advent of aviation, you know, you think about the Wright brothers in the early 1900s. Uh, the first 
you know, uses of aircraft were, were by the government. I think it was to ferry mail to take to places. And, you know, the Europeans were rapidly catching up to the U.S. and in some ways overtaking in the early 1900s. And so the government was using that capability for certain purposes. And then it was from that initial investment. In the United States, the investment was done by NASA's predecessor organization, NACA, the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics. They used that research and that capability to develop their commercial uh, capabilities. So people need to remember that the genesis of today's commercial aviation, which we take completely for granted as a way of life, except obviously in a pandemic when everything stopped, but it's coming back. That It had its genesis in early government investment in solving the problems of flight, albeit that the initial um, uh, people that were working on those problems were private people, meaning the Wright brothers particularly. So I think that's the perfect analogy for the evolution of commercial spaceflight. The government provides a lot of investment and capabilities. In fact, the NASA had a program called the Commercial Crew and Commercial Cargo Program, which invested in uh, companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin to develop technologies to be able to do what they're doing. The heat shield that the Dragon uses on SpaceX is a NASA-developed heat shield. It was actually tested at Ames Research Center in one of our ArcJet facilities. And so the material that was designed and, and, and put on that capsule is NASA-developed material. Um, the whole architecture for how you do certain things in space and rendezvous and avoid objects and things like that, a lot of that stuff was worked out because of previous government investments. So that led, that made the groundwork, I think, for the evolution of commercial flight. So I think the good thing is, is that as business people figure out how to monetize um, a space, and they're looking at different ways of doing it, a lot of, a lot of the monetization now is in satellites uh, for communications and internet and things of that nature, as well as providing capabilities for governments for Earth resource uh, analysis and other types of scientific experiments that there will be continue to be a growth in that. People are looking at space hotels where you and I can go up and spend a week in space on a hotel. People are looking at taking tourists to the moon and back. So there's a lot of things that are happening, and I think that that provides a, a, a use case for the space economy, which is actually growing. I think what's going to be interesting, and I actually think I saw a tweet on this recently from Elon Musk. I didn't track it down is that inevitably, just like in early aviation, people are going to die in, ordinary people, tourists, whatever, are going to die in uh, space because of an accident or a problem. I, I, I don't mind to sound pessimistic, and I hope I'm wrong. It's already happened. It happened with Richard Branson and his Virgin Galactic, although it wasn't a space tourist. It was one of his pilots uh, was killed uh, in an accident. So... The question is going to be, what's going to happen after that? Are there are the governments going to want to clamp down and have more regulation, and and people are going to get spooked and not do it? Is it going to put a, a damper on the space economy? Uh, because in early aviation, a lot of planes crashed. 
I mean, let's face it, nowadays, planes just don't crash because, uh, notwithstanding the 737 MAX, you know, which was really a software and a training problem, okay? You know, planes, the, the, the structural integrity of planes are such that, you know, they put them through the paces far more uh, challenging than what, you know, in, in, in testing uh, that they would experience in real flight. So we've come a long way in the safety of aviation, air traffic control, and things of that nature. And I think the same evolution is going to happen in space. The only question is, you know, is it going to stop for a really long time or not? Um, the other thing that, and that's the last thing I'll say about this, is that space is expensive. It's expensive to mm -hmm. reduce your risk to be able to do certain things. And so uh, it's not surprising that only very wealthy people right now can underwrite, you know, their, their part, um, whether it, it the price points come down on all aspects of the life cycle of space exploration that more people can get involved i'm not i'm not 100 percent sure about that it does strike me as a very expensive industry of course you know there's a lot yeah. of research that goes into it you know you're you're using the very best minds and, and thus obviously you're, you're paying for the very best minds um, and i guess that's why the likes of elon musk you know they're, they're looking at and many other uh, space uh, companies and uh, you know the probably NASA as well, you know, they're looking at crafts that can come back uh, as well as go there. Um, yes. And I think that's the important thing and sort of be reused as well, I think is, is the key, isn't it? And right. that can make it perhaps more affordable. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you said about, you know, the sort of the regulation and, and so forth of, of space exploration. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, if, if you were to, let's say you were just a, a, you know, billionaire wanting to go to space. I mean, how regulated are things? And because I know at the moment, I mean, there's, there's so many companies looking to get um, satellites out there, almost so much so. I watched a documentary and I, I don't know how true this is, but there's a lot of, you know, there is too many perhaps uh, s satellites out there and there's becoming almost um i think the term was space trash you know there's actually bits of them breaking off and and things like that and how much do you think that is a problem and and how regulated are things at the moment i mean could you just if you had the funds could you could you start a business to to go to the moon if if you had the funds i mean how regulated are things at the moment from a regulation standpoint, you know, the, the current, if you have money and a capability, you can launch things, but there, there's things you're going to have to pay attention to in terms of where you launch your vehicles and airspace and making sure planes aren't in the vicinity. You have a safe zone in case the vehicle uh, uh, is destroyed. Uh, once you're in space, um, you know, you have... I believe you have to announce what orbit you're going to be in so that you're not going to crash into the space station or something else. Um, but I, I will say, because I think there's a business opportunity here, and I think people are working on it, particularly for your audience, Pierre, the problem of space debris is huge. It is there are lots of things being launched. The astronomers are complaining that, you know, with all these satellites it's disrupting their ability to do observations uh, a man that used to work for me actually in his previous job he, he was a space station mission controller and his job primarily was to keep moving the space station out of the way of you know debris that was in orbit 
Now, you know, that's a $150 billion space station, so it's really important to make sure you don't have something run into it because, you know, you could have a decompression and, you know, it could be a bad day on many fronts. So, um, and then, you know, uh, you know, from a, from a space management standpoint, you know, what do you do with defunct satellites? What about satellites that didn't work? What about uh, rocket parts that stayed in orbit, you know, that might decay? And are they going to fully decay and not have pieces of it actually crash on the ground? I mean, these are increasing problems. And how do you solve that, right? I mean, do you just take a big garbage truck up to space and go around gobbling up parts and things like that? I mean, countries are going to have to have treaties, you know, who's going to allow another country to take your trash out, and is that going to be an issue? And if you could do things like that, then there's dual use, right? If you're thinking about space warfare, you can easily use the capability to uh, attract another satellite to, to, to move it out of the way to go destroy somebody else's satellite. So and then how do you defend against that? So it becomes a blossoming problem, and I think we're going to see more of that. But I would I would suggest a lot of listeners who are interested in the space economy take a look at the space debris problem because it, it's a big problem. I think there's there's a lot of a lot of areas sort of with, within the sector of of space really that uh, are huge potential opportunities, and I think we'd you know it's just really emerging, isn't it? And and I was actually um, I took part in a sort of a webinar which was all around startup space technology companies, and the, there's so many different areas that they're looking at. And it's, uh, it's it's truly amazing. Um, yeah. So a question back to to sort of NASA and and to any of the listeners who are sort of young listeners wanting to to go into a huge inspirational institution such as NASA where where would they start and and what would you advise that they they did at university and what's what's the way the way forward Right so the first thing that most people need to know is that if you're going to work as a U.S. civil servant in NASA, and I was a civil servant, the, the law requires you to be a U.S. citizen. Now, there are some rare exceptions, and people can come to the United States and get uh, certain types of visas that basically we treat them as U.S. citizens for the most part, but pre it's pretty restrictive. However, you know, there's contractors in certain positions where we have we hire more contractors than we hire federal civil servants, in fact. And so people can work in certain areas uh, uh, with our contractors. At universities, we, universities are, receive a lot of grants from NASA to do certain work. And um, with some exceptions, you know, people who are not U.S. citizens can work on certain grants. Um, what I try to encourage people to th remember is that in many countries, there are um, uh, there are there they have their own space programs. I mean, the UK has a space program. I've actually visited some of the facilities north of London. Uh, you know, there's Airbus. You know, there's DLR in Germany. You know, even the African nations are developing you know their own indigenous space capabilities. The Indians certainly have it with ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization. Uh, so, so there's more uh, you know space organizations, you know, being supported by governments that are, that are evolving and, 
and there's companies in many countries that are involved in space-related things. So there's ways of participating in aerospace and space exploration without necessarily working for NASA. Now, I appreciate that a lot of people would like to work for NASA just because, well, I know it's cool because I work there. But, um, you know, there's many ways to um, enjoy what you have a passion for in aerospace, whatever it is, uh, uh, without necessarily having to work for NASA. And to be clear, NASA is not a private business. NASA is a government agency, so the rules are different. You know, we're not SpaceX. Uh, we're not Blue Origin. So maybe some people have more of an interest in the business side of space, and they might want to look at that. Um, I never try to advise students on, you know, what to study and where to go because I think it's important that they follow their own heart about their interest. I remind people, for example, that NASA actually hires more non-STEM related people than STEM people, right? People who are, we, we have a lot of scientists and engineers and technologists and mathematicians, but we hire more people who aren't that. We have lawyers, we have doctors, we have educators, we have artists, we have accountants, we have finance people, I mean, we have property management people. So most of the jobs aren't technical jobs in NASA. So I don't, I want to encourage people to remember that. And that's probably going to be true for other space agencies and, and even private companies. In fact, I just got an email about a bunch of jobs that uh, SpaceX is hiring for. I just happened to, to glance through them and many jobs are not, um, you know, they're not engineer jobs, you know, they're property management jobs and things like that. And, um, and Donald, so um, your experience and all your years of, um, of, of knowledge at, at NASA um, and in life in general as well, it's led you to writing a book uh, called Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money won't and i love the message of that actually but um tell us a little bit about the book and some of the inspiration behind it and what people can expect when when they read it thank you very much yeah i'm very i'm very proud of this uh because i never wrote a book before so it took you know quite a bit to figure out how to do it and get it published and all of that but the book that came out of uh when i was reflecting on my career after i retired in 2017 um, and I was actually giving a talk to a group of NASA interns. This was after I had retired, so I was invited to come back. And, and I tell this story in the book where a young man asked me, you know, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, you know, what would I advise him to do? You know, sort of like the question you asked earlier, what would I advise young people who are interested in, in space and NASA and things like that, you know, to do? And so um, I, I gave... I gave that young man three answers. I said, well, the first thing that I would tell myself if I were younger, knowing what I know now, is I would say yes more to a lot of opportunities that may come my way. And I, Because I feel that, in hindsight, I had opportunities that I didn't take either because I was fearful that I wouldn't be successful or I didn't want to move or I, didn't, I felt like I was a little outside of my comfort zone technically. Um, and in hindsight, I realized that the things that I did say yes to turned out fabulously well in, in, in the long run. The second thing, though, which is really the heart of this book, is I said I would remind young Donald about what his mother taught him and my brother, 
that the most important thing you could develop as a skill uh, for any business or vocation are your manners. And she said, manners will take you where brains and money won't. And if you think about it, um, Pierre, you know, there are a lot of smart people who are in prison, right? You know, Bernie Madoff was one of them. He died recently, but he wasn't stupid. He just was a criminal. <laughs> and there are a lot of rich people who aren't happy. You know, they're depressed. And, you know, we hear about, sadly, people taking their lives, and yet they have a lot of money. So clearly, having money and, you know, having, you know, intelligence doesn't necessarily get you to where, you know, at least my mother thinks you need to be, which is, you know, doing great and wonderful things. And so I told that young man that I would tell Donald, you really need to focus on that. And this, and so when I retired and I decided to write a, a book about this, I wanted to really encourage students and early career professionals. Yes, this is very important to develop your technical skills, right? NASA is never going to hire you to be an astronaut because you have great manners. However, if you don't have great manners, it's entirely possible that NASA won't hire you. In fact, you know, there are, uh, there are people that NASA's hired uh, that, you know, are very smart, went to great schools, but they lost their jobs or it just didn't work out. Uh, and so... I encourage people to really think about this, whether they're going into business for themselves or whether they are going to work for a government agency, to pay attention to this. So the question is, well, what do I mean by manners? And so it's, it's more than just politeness and civility. Those are important components. But it's, and it's more than just, you know, please and thank you and standing up and, uh, um, you know, things of that nature. It's, it's just... The entire way you show up in the world, it's your, it's your body language, it's your speaking, it's your listening, it's your attention. Um, you know, I, I, I have countless stories of, you know, having staff meetings where, you know, a staff member, you know, wasn't paying attention because he or she was buried in their cell phone or someone's phone goes off in a meeting. And I've seen this at senior meetings. I remember one time the NASA administrator got really mad because somebody's phone went off and the guy leaned over, kind of ducked behind the table to take the call. The administrator said, is what is on that phone call more important than this meeting? And the guy goes, oh, no, sir. He goes, well, get off of it. You know, it's like, why do people do things like that? Um, so I, I wrote this book because I think this can be very liberating for a lot of people because I talk about the importance of authentic presence and how, how liberating it could be to just really focus on who you are as an individual without trying to pretend to be somebody else and at the same time learn to skillfully engage people in such a way that they just you know they just want to work with you they just want you on their team you know i tell a story about this young kid that i saw at a science fair once that just impressed me he had presence and he was um you know, he, he looked at me straight in the eye and his body language said that, you know, I'm really happy to be here. And, and I'm, and this guy, this kid just really impressed me. And I kept thinking, man, I would hire him in a minute. 
I would hire him in a minute to work at NASA because I could teach him the technical skills he needs to know to do the job. But I almost, it's almost impossible to teach somebody good manners. The only problem with this kid is he was 11 years old, and I, I couldn't believe it. He, it was just mm-hmm. astonishing. And so I just feel so important about this. I wish everybody who was starting a career or graduating from school would would take a look and see if this resonates with them because I have seen in my experience, and if you look at just what's happening in the world, look at people who lose their jobs these days, Peter. Most of the time, people who are losing their jobs, they get fired or they get, you know, they get cancel culture or whatever it is. It's not because they're incompetent. It's not because they were stupid. It's not because they weren't smart. It's because their their character was misguided or they did they did executed extremely poor judgment or their manners just weren't you know weren't right um and so that's that's why i wrote the book and i i i really hope people will resonate with it definitely yeah i mean it's it's a really really good um sort of meaning to that i mean you know i, I think it's all about attitude isn't it you know i mean i've in my field, um, you know, marketing, I've had people that have, uh, you know, come to me for, for jobs and they've been very bright, very intelligent, but they've been arrogant, you know, and although, you know, somewhat sales, I guess, you know, arrogance to, to some degree, some might say is a, is an advantage. I certainly don't think so. And, and I think that, uh, you know, I think over anything, I think manners is, uh, you know, is, is a really good characteristic because I think if you've got intelligence, and you've got skill set but you've also got manners I mean I would take that over the most talented person in sales you know in any kind of sales capacity I would much rather take someone with manners and the right attitude uh, than someone who is really 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 good but just you know the attitude stinks Um, absolutely it can ruin teams uh, because part of my definition of manners is someone who's open to having uh, support from their team. I have a whole chapter on how I think it's important to cultivate a team around you, whether it's your inner circle of friends or family, people in there that you rely on, or your professional networks or, or experts. You know, I think it's important to have people who are willing that you allow them to coach you and to observe and say, you know, Donald, when you were running that meeting, I noticed that you kept cutting off the women, but you didn't cut off the men. This may be perceived as being uh, implicit bias. And I may be completely unaware that I was doing that. And it may be difficult for somebody to want to share that with me, but the fact of the matter is if I allow them to do that and I encourage them to do that, they're doing me a big favor because then I can improve and grow myself. So I think you're absolutely right, right? If, if they, may, they may not even be the best marketer or salesperson by some standard, but if they approach the job with a sense of humility and like I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to be coached, then you can train them to do the technical part of the job. But if they're a jerk and they think they're holier than thou and that their poop doesn't stink, that you cannot untrain that no matter what you do. And, and, and I would say to the people who think, well, look at how many successful people are like that and, you know, they're arrogant and they're jerks. And I say, well, I have, 
I, I place a, a, a moral and a value attribute to manners. And the fact is, I wouldn't want to be with that person because I think in the long run, what goes around comes down. And so um, I would implore people to, to, to see the value at, at just remembering our humanity with other people and, and how to establish rapport and, and not putting on an act and not, not pretending anymore. I think it's just liberating. Definitely. And I guess that all plays into being a team player as well. And I guess that's, you know, massively important, um, you know, at, at NASA. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There's some astronauts who don't want certain people on their crew, Pierre. I know this. I've interviewed them. I've seen them. You don't hear about these stories, right? Because you think they all get along and they're not, that's not true. I talked to one of the crew members of Apollo 15 once. He said he and another guy never spoke the whole time they came back from the moon because they were loggerheads with each other. You know, they had to, they had to do everything in their power to, to, to do the right thing, you know? So these things happen, right? Um, you know, it's just, it's something that I really suggest, and, and it's not hard to to practice if you're willing to. Um, I think, per- personally, I think it's the secret sauce to success. I'm willing to say that. Um, I, I just, I do believe that. Excellent. And, uh, and yeah, to, I, I guess I, I couldn't have a chat with you without asking the question. Um, and I'll, I'll find the, the best way to, to ask it. Um, so, we are obviously in, in earth and, and um, the planet earth is, is very conditional to life. Um, all the things that we have, oxygen, um, water, everything like that. Um, and it seems to, to many of us that, you know, there isn't really another earth, uh, certainly not within a, a, a local um, distance to us. And I say local distance, obviously, you know, it's very expansive. Um, but, Potentially, I, I believe that there there are many thousands, uh, if not millions, of uh, other potential Earths, you know, planets just like Earth, um, out there in other galaxies and you know within the universe there somewhere that perhaps we're we're not so aware of. Although I know you know some of them we are aware of, but that asks the big biggest question, which is the time old question, and uh, you know what's coming. Um, do you believe that there is life out there? And um, I mean, or do you, do you think it's a, just a case of time? I mean, what, what's your, your thoughts? That's the big question. Well, personally, I believe that there is a form of life in the universe that's not on Earth. Um, and, but we haven't proven that yet. So it's still a hypothesis. And I believe that because in my lifetime, in my lifetime, we have discovered other planets. We've discovered other planets that are Earth-like, meaning they revolve around a star. And we've discovered other planets that are Earth-like that are in what the NASA scientists like to call the Goldilocks zone. Not too close to the star, not too far away, just right. Because you know if you're too close to the star, it's going to be too hot to inhabit life as we know it. If you're too far away, it's too cold. I think the interesting question is, and I I thought about this when I heard a talk by um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, the um, astrophysicist in the United States, and he's popular on TV and YouTube. And the question is, 
well, would we even recognize a life form if we saw it? So it forces us to say, okay, well, what do we actually mean by life, right? So does it have to be like you and me, a human being with a head, arms, and legs? He goes, well, no, it doesn't have to be that. I mean, does it have to be uh, uh, an organic organism, or does it have to be something that has to replicate itself and use water and breathe air? So, you, you know, you you have to decide if you're ever going to find life, what are the metrics and standards by which you're going to say, based on these metrics and standards, we have found life. If you use the standard, well, it has to look anthropomorphically like humans, then you may never find life because, I, you know, are there little green men out there? Well, I, I, I can't prove it yes or not, so I can't say. I mean, my intuition says says not. I don't, I don't know why we came up with green men to represent aliens. Um, but NASA, since its beginning, has been looking at that question. Many of our research missions are designed, astronomy research missions are designed to answer that question. The Kepler spacecraft was specifically designed to find other planets, and we found them. Then the test spacecraft was designed, okay, what's the next question? Can you see an atmosphere around some of those planets? And they're beginning to find evidence of that. And then where are they actually located? And so once you've identified the location, as we go forward with more and more future powerful telescopes, you can go back to some of those objects and try to see, you know, what you can find. Um, I... I would like to live long enough to find proof that we have found evidence of life on other planets. I think that would be an amazing feat. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. Um, so it's a fair question, uh, but it's equally fair in deference to the people who think life only exists on Earth to honor that because the fact is we haven't proven that. If you ask the majority of NASA astronomers and astrophysicists that same question, they would all say, yes, I absolutely believe there is life out there in the universe because it's just too big. Uh, there was a famous astronomer named uh, Drake. I forgot his first name. He had Drake's equation about the probability of planets like Earth based on some math equation. And it's billions, right? You know, So is it really the case that of all the billions of planets that are around star systems that Earth is the only one that was capable of producing life as we know it. I just find it hard to believe, and yet we haven't proven that, so you can't disrespect anybody who believes that life only exists on Earth because we just don't have the evidence. But we're looking. Yeah, I would say, well, my, my belief would be from, from my sort of limited understanding, um, you know, would be that there probably is, but, but so far away because the conditions that made it perfect for life here are so, um, you know, so rare, uh, you know, the, the, in the millions, if not billions of percentages to, to get it to the point of where we are and how evolved we are, um, that, yeah, it, it's possible, but probably so far distant in uh you know in some other galaxy you know very 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 far away from us you know but yeah i guess it probably it, it there is life out there but um but yeah it's it's a very very rare life and i think it it, it makes us think about life and it, you know how amazing we are as a planet uh you know yes. not just what's outside there and sort of beyond the planet but quite how amazing we are as a human species um with everything that we have on on the planet is, it, is exactly 
I couldn't have said it better, Pierre. And what I would really encourage the listeners to just go away from this part of the conversation is not this question about whether or not there is life, but to really think about, well, what do you mean by life? Like, what, what are the standards, right? I mean, because when, you, when, when we say life, we think we know what it means, but what does it actually mean? We've actually found what we would call living microorganisms on Earth surviving in very toxic, non-compatible-to-human-life forms. I mean, well, how did they exist? Like, if, if they were in, you know, what if other planets have the same toxicity and we find the same kind of organisms, like on... Um, like on one of the moons of, uh, of Jupiter, I think it is. I forgot which one. But so, so that's the question. Is that, So what do you actually mean by it, right? Because you have to, when you find something, you have to compare it to something else to decide whether or not it meets your test. So that, to me, is an interesting question, is what do you mean by life? What, what, what has to be the conditions of what you find to say, yes, that is life as we define it? Definitely. Yeah. I think probably, you know, I, I hope, you know, within my lifetime, we, we will find um, life. But like you say, when, when we expect life as, you know, as, as the people of Earth, a lot of people assume, like you say, it's going to be sort of green uh, individuals, you know, with sort of things coming out of their head. But really, it's probably more likely going to be something very basic, you know, a bacteria, um, you know, a plant, some something very primitive maybe if that's the right word you know very something that's very very simple um but that would give us hope that you know there is something maybe more um more advanced um even further afield right Um, Right. but but donald thank you so much i I really really do appreciate um your time today you know it's it's incredible um that that i've you know had your time and i'm very thankful for that um for anybody who is wanting to reach out to you to to get hold of your book what, what platforms are you on and, and where can they reach you sure thank you uh well you can find me on facebook and linkedin uh however if you uh, just go to my personal website uh which is just my full name donald gregory james donald gregory james.com uh, you can see information about me and the book, how to purchase the book, which is available on Amazon uh, as an ebook or as a paperback. Uh, but DonaldGregoryJames.com uh, is one way. Uh, or reach out to me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, I'm happy to communicate with people. Um, the email that I use is just the first part of my book, Manners Will Take You at gmail.com manners will take you at gmail.com and i i welcome people reaching out to me i welcome people's ideas and and most importantly i'm really interested um because now i've talked about this book outside of the united states if any of what i write about makes sense in different cultures that's one question i'm not sure about i've had the privilege of living in many countries uh, growing up uh, but I don't presume that, you know, what I say would necessarily resonate or make sense. And so I would welcome that feedback because I'm contemplating, you know, a sequel to Manners to, to perhaps incorporate more of the input that I get from people abroad. So I hope people find it useful if you're just starting off in business and you want to have a good fulfilling career i think there's something in here for you and if you're a student i know there's something in here for you and pierre i just am grateful for this opportunity to meet you and 
and to talk to you about these things.